Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm Gary Mitchell, a member of the Wisconsin Alliance for Retired Americans. Your support helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. Hi, I'm Rebecca Meyer Rao of Worker Justice Wisconsin. This week, we hear from the Dane County NAACP on their support for UW nurses, discuss big changes at the U.S. Postal Service, learn about labor actions by CUNA and Kaiser workers, as well as Minnesota nurses, share a statistic of the week, and much more. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. OPEIU Local 39 feels that negotiations with CUNA Mutual are going too slow. So the union took action this week. Greg Bosky reports. On Tuesday, the board of directors of the credit union financial management giant CUNA Mutual was meeting at its brand new building at its national headquarters on Mineral Point Road in Madison. So, dozens of CUNA workers, members of Local 39 of the Office and Professional Employees International Union, or OPEIU, decided to spend their lunchtime greeting the visiting board members with a spirited informational picket. Here is Joe Avica. Chief Steward for CUNA Workers at OPEIU Local 39. Today we have dozens of our coworkers out here taking an action during our lunch, picketing during our board of directors meeting. The board of directors is meeting for the first time at their brand new building that they've just completed. Uh, it costed hundreds of millions of dollars. We're in the middle of contract negotiations and the company right now is proposing to cut our health care, to freeze our pensions, and offering wages that are far below inflation. So we're out here to tell them that when our company is making record profits like they did last year, we deserve a fair contract, we deserve a fair raise, we deserve strong benefits that are gonna help attract and retain employees at CUNA Mutual Group. Job security is another key issue, said Avika. CUNA Mutual in the last 20 years has outsourced more than 1,200 of our jobs. We're trying to secure language that will protect our jobs into the future. John C. Kalaputi of the CUNA IT department and a member of Local 39 explained why she was spending her lunchtime marching. We are here to have the fair contract negotiation done soon. We are being waiting from February and it's being already end of August, but we need that now. That was John C. Kalaputi, a worker at CUNA Mutual and a member of OPEIU Local 39, speaking from an informational picket at CUNA headquarters on Tuesday. When reached for comment, Barclay Pollock, a spokesperson at CUNA, wrote to Labor Radio, CUNA Mutual Group respects the collective bargaining process and employers' rights to peacefully express their opinions as part of the process. 
we look forward to coming to an agreement that is fair and competitive. CUNA Mutual Group has a decades-long positive relationship with the OPEIU Local 39. We respect the collective bargaining process, and to that end, we don't anticipate making further public comments on negotiations. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Chabosky. Labor Radio spoke with Greg Jones, president of the Dane County NAACP, about their ongoing effort to meet with a UW hospital and clinics board on behalf of UW nurses and their effort to have their union recognized. Greg Jones, your first attempt to meet with the UW hospital board in support of UW nurses was denied. They offered the option to submit something in writing. You recently submitted a second request to meet with them. So you haven't heard back. Right. What is the next step? We issued a second request on Tuesday of this week. We're now on Thursday and we haven't heard back. But what we thought we would do is make the request to the board members themselves personally. What we want to really stress is, if I understand correctly, I believe the board has has the authority and or ability to invite community groups to those meetings. It is under that particular uh, idea and thought that I would hope that we'd be allowed to come and have a conversation with them. So our next step is to, number one, allow them some time, probably a week to 10 days, to respond to the second request. And after that, what I will be asking the Labor and Industry Committee to do is if we can't really you know, have a conversation with that body that makes those decisions, then what can we do in support of the nurses? We're not going to give up on supporting them. We'll continue to push forward. If we don't get a positive or an affirmative uh, response from the board, the next step is going to then ask for an individual meeting with the chair of the board. The NAACP Madison hopes to talk to the board about specific issues and possible ways to resolve those issues. Some of them can be resolved through what we believe is a uh, satisfied workforce, a workforce that includes individual employees or employee units that have the right to sit at the table and bargain collectively for themselves. Greg Jones and others at NAACP Madison are going to continue the fight for UW nurses and their rights to be represented and they encourage other community groups and individuals to do the same. How would our listeners go about letting board members know that they think this is a good way to go? I think all of the community support and all of the community engagement from all walks of life would be an effective tool to at least let these decision makers know we'd like to at least uh, have the opportunity to make the case. We have been talking to Greg Jones from the NAACP in Madison. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Madison Labor Radio. Y'all, whoa, look out. What is it good 
Badger Hawkeye Red Cross workers face continued stonewalling from management in their efforts to win a fair contract. Labor Radio's Ellen Lalazern spoke with Badger Red Cross steward and phlebotomist Jesse Switchkowski about their contract talks. Can you bring us up to date on your contract talks? We have a national addendum that covers the nation as far as all of the national Red Crosses from east to west, coast to coast. We are bargaining in our local contract, and we have been making no progress in the local contract. We are asking for wage increases across the board, mostly just to keep up with cost of living. We have been negotiating in good faith. However, they are not moving on any of these proposals that we have. My understanding is that although the national agreement has been ratified by most workers around the country, you are under a deadline to get the local agreement settled. Is that correct? We have a time limit up until September 15th in order to finish our local negotiations and ratify the national addendum. Both of these contracts are ratified together, so they need to be completed in a timely manner. If we cannot come to a contract agreement by the 15th, we'll have a 90-day extension automatically to reach a contract. Following that extension, then our contract will expire. What is management's offer for wages? Management is attacking us on both sides. The initial raises that we have will not be enough for our younger employees. They're starting out at too low of a wage. And our more senior employees aren't getting the raises that they deserve. And we are basically being punished, where the longer you stay at the Red Cross, don't get the raises that you need. So in essence, you're losing money. How is management justifying their wage offer? One claim that the Red Cross is positing is that they have market data to support the raises that they are offering. We have asked repeatedly for this data to say, hey, let's take a look. Current inflation is 9%. Red Cross is offering raises of about 3%. What numbers show that we only deserve this meager raise? Are there other issues you're fighting for? Some concerns that we certainly have is proper staffing in any medical environment. If the proper staff isn't available to help folks, they get subpar care. In addition to that, we are also doing these blood drives at various locations, and we are driving large trucks full of equipment. It is difficult to unload and load these trucks. We need the personnel and safety equipment. We need to do it safely. How can the community help you? Red Cross union members are not able to picket or informationally flyer any of the blood drives. We have had help from our allies at Scuffle, the South Central Federation of Labor. They have helped us in educating community members with flyering these drives. We want folks to reach out to the Red Cross and ask them to bargain in good faith. The community can help by saying, hey, Red Cross, we support these workers and we support their rights to bargaining. Any closing comments? This fight is certainly not over. I am sure we'll be reaching out for community support in the coming months. That was Jesse Switchkowski, Badger Red Cross steward and phlebotomist. This is Ellen Lalazern reporting for Labor Radio. Community members can email CEO Gail McGovern at gail.mcgovern at redcross, all one word, dot O-R-G, or call one 800 733 2767. Tell them why you are concerned about donating blood given the issues facing Badger Hawkeye Region Red Cross workers. Fight for a fair contract. 
Burke O'Neill, co-owner of a Madison solar installation company, Full, Full Spectrum Solar, talked to Labor Radio reporter Janine Ramsey about the impact the newly signed Inflation Reduction Act will ha- have on his business. The Inflation Reduction Act, can you explain what you know about it in terms of what you do? The main part that's relevant to us is the 30% tax credit with the possibility of it going up to 40 or even 50%, depending on whether you meet the domestic manufactured component requirements. And if it's in an energy district, which as I understand it means like a place where there used to be fossil fuel extraction, maybe like coal mining or something, or if it's low income. The thing that's really exciting for us is having a 10-year extension of a minimum of a 30% investment tax credit. There's been uh, tax credits for solar installations going back to 2006. Many times they're, they're extended for a year or a number of years, but there's always the risk of the tax credits disappearing, not being extended. You know, the last one was 2020 and they they extended the tax credit for quite a while, four years, but it had a step down. And unfortunately, the tax credit stepped down to 26% this year and it was going to go down to 22% next year. So the idea was that uh, solar energy installation costs would keep going down as these tax credits were phased out. But due to the pandemic and supply chain issues and inflation, we kind of had a situation where the tax credit was going down from originally 30% to 22% next year. And at the same time, the price we're paying for materials is up 10 to 30%. So having a 30% tax credit for 10 years is something we can really build on. We can expand our shop and warehouse space. It's going to be a lot easier to convince the bank to make a loan if they know there's support for the industry for the long term, we can invest more money into like training, apprenticeship, you know, items like that, that we might be a little hesitant to if we know our tax credit is going away in a year or two and our employment needs might go the other direction. So this is really a a good long-term extension that we can build on. How might someone who wants a solar installation get their tax credit? The way it works is Let's say you put in a $10,000 photovoltaic solar electric system on your roof, you would get $3,000 off your taxes. So as long as you paid in at least $3,000 in taxes, you would get that refunded. Does this mean that you are going to be able to hire additional people? How do people get into this line of work if they want to? For solar installers, like we're hiring right now, Ideally, we're looking for people that have a year or two of construction experience or at least uh, some mechanical aptitude. Solar installers does not fit into any of the traditional apprentice programs. It's not electrician. It's not carpenter. So we're mostly training people on the job that have, you know, mechanical aptitude that feel comfortable climbing on roofs, you know, that can use the safety gear. I think with this long-term extension of the tax credit, it looks like a more viable career path for people and there'll be more opportunities for, you know, certificates. Maybe there'll be a solar installer apprenticeship program like there is for electricians. I think there's a lot of potential for growth and I think the tech schools and colleges will be probably more willing to 
build programs when there's like a real demand for it. That was Burke O'Neill of Full Spectrum Solar. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio Madison. An immigrant rights group is now broadcasting a regular monthly meeting for workers on social media. Greg Jabowski has more. Every second Saturday of the month, the Milwaukee-based immigrants' rights organization, Voces de la Frontera, has held bilingual meetings of its Essential Workers' Rights Network. This last Saturday, August 13th, Voces began offering a hybrid meeting via Zoom and broadcasting the meeting via Facebook so that workers throughout the state could join in. Federal and state wage and hour law was the topic Saturday. Presenters included a representative of the U.S. Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division and also plaintiff's attorney Summer Mirshid of the Wisconsin firm of Hawks Quindell. Mirshid here gave an example of an overtime calculation faced by many workers, immigrant and non-immigrant alike. Sometimes you'll see employers try to average overtime over two. They'll say, we want you to work 60 hours this week and 20 hours the next week. And since it's 80 hours over two weeks, we're not going to pay you overtime for that additional 20 hours in the first week. Okay, algo uh, común es que un empleador puede decir que trata de, de justificarlo con mirando que es el, el uh, promedio. As it turned out, a worker at the meeting had a question on just this point. Yeah, so uh, if you get paid every two weeks, does the example you were given where, like, you work 60 hours one day and 20, does it work? By work week, not pay period by pay period. <laughs> so even if you get paid every two weeks, you still have to be paid overtime for week one and overtime for week two. So la contestación es que... That was Summer Mirshid, a labor attorney from the firm of Hawks Quindell, speaking Saturday at a regular meeting of the Essential Workers' Rights Network of Voces de la Frontera. Christine Newman-Ortiz, executive director of Voces, was the translator. Voces has a convention next month, but bilingual monthly meetings held every second Saturday resume on October 8th. Membership in the Essential Workers' Rights Network is not required for attendance, but is encouraged. A recording of last Saturday's event can be seen on Voces de la Frontera's Facebook page. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. As Starbucks baristas across the country begin to assert their power as newly minted union members, the company is taking increasingly extreme steps to suppress their activity. Labor Radio has more on the company's recent behavior. Sam Amato was fired from a Buffalo area Starbucks earlier this month after working for the company for more than 13 years. The location, whose employees voted to unionize in March, has been closed since August 5th after workers walked out to demand Amato's reinstatement. Michael Sinato reported for The Guardian last week that months after they voted to unionize, quote, Amato and his coworkers were transferred to different stores while their own store underwent remodeling, where he said workers were heavily scrutinized by the store manager through disciplinary actions and write-ups. Amato is just one of dozens of union leaders that Starbucks has fired in recent months as the organizing wave continues expanding to more than 200 locations across the U.S. Even as management terminates employees, shutters entire stores, and threatens to deny new wage increases and benefits to organized workers. A tally kept by the outlet More Perfect Union estimates that the coffee outlet has terminated, quote, at least 70 pro-union workers since February. In South Carolina, a Starbucks store manager recently went as far as accusing unionized workers of kidnapping and assault, after they laid out a list of demands during a meeting. 
A video taken by workers and shared by the union captures the tense atmosphere of the encounter, although it shows no evidence that the manager was coerced by workers in any way. Why are you pushing him? Why are you pushing him? Why are you pushing him? Ma'am, why are you pushing him? The union rebukes the accusations leveled by the company against South Carolina baristas, calling them, quote, false and absurd in a public statement posted on social media. Beyond the scope of individual employees and stores, the company has turned to undermining the legitimacy of the entire union election process and the institutions tasked with overseeing it. Attorneys representing the company alleged in a letter sent to the NLRB's general counsel on Monday that board officials in Kansas City improperly coordinated with union activists during the election process for a series of stores in the area, calling for a nationwide halt of mail-in elections until their claims were fully investigated. The board has already begun to respond to the company's suppression efforts in earnest. This week, a federal judge in Tennessee ordered Starbucks to offer the reinstatement of seven fired baristas that participated in a union drive at a Memphis cafe in February. The case was brought against the company by the NLRB in June after it determined that the company terminated the employees unlawfully. On the call for a nationwide halt to Starbucks elections, the board was not willing to share an official opinion yet. Quote, those challenges should be raised in filings specific to the particular matters in question, end quote, said Caleb Blado, the board spokesperson in a statement. Quote, the regional staff and ultimately the board will carefully and objectively consider any challenges raised through these established channels, which include opportunities to seek expedited review in both representation and unfair labor practice cases. Reporting for Labor Radio, I'm Sean Hagerup. On Tuesday, Minnesota nurses authorized a strike. Carol Weidel has the details. This week, nurses with the Minnesota Nurses Association overwhelmingly authorized a strike of more than 15,000 nurses under seven hospital systems. They want to hold healthcare executives accountable for putting profits before patients. Mary C. Turner, president of the union, gave this statement. Hospital executives with million-dollar salaries have created a crisis of retention and care for our healthcare system as more nurses are leaving the bedside, putting quality patient care at risk. Nurses do not take this decision lightly, but we are determined to take a stand at the bargaining table and on the sidewalk if necessary to put patients before profits in our hospital. CEO James Hereford took a 90% raise in 2019 now earning $3.5 million. His pay is 40 times the average nurse's salary. At the bargaining table, the nurses seek solutions to short staffing and retention. Hospital executives have insisted on focusing on wages. Vice President Chris Robish described the mood among nurses. Good morning. My name is Chris Robish. I am a cardiac nurse at St. Mary's. I'm one of our bargaining team members. And I'm the first vice president of the Minnesota Nurses Association. Yesterday, nurses at Essential Twin Ports joined our coworkers across the state and overwhelmingly authorized a strike. Together, we are taking this unprecedented step to stand up for patient safety, for staff retention, and for the future of the nursing profession. We do not make this decision lightly. Nurses want to come to work. We propose changes to our contracts that would recruit and retain staff which our employers have refused to consider. And so now we are left to take this drastic action. 
Nurses in the Twin Cities are working without a contract since May 31st. The vote authorizes nurse negotiation leaders to call a strike following a 10-day notice to hospital employers. Such a strike of 15,000 nurses would be one of the largest nurses' strikes in U.S. history. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. Thousands of mental health workers in California are... Thousands of mental health workers employed by Kaiser Permanente have been on strike since Monday. Labor Radio has more on their demands. Thousands of mental health workers in California are on strike to demand that their employer, Kaiser Permanente, America's largest nonprofit HMO, better provide, quote, desperately needed services. As the U.S. grapples with an increase in mental health issues such as anxiety and depression brought on by the pandemic, Kaiser patients are waiting months for therapy sessions, according to the union representing the workers. Starting Monday, more than 2,000 employees, including psychologists, therapists, social workers, and counselors, have held daily rallies at picket lines across the state, from Sacramento to the Bay Area to Fresno, as a part of an open-ended strike. The move comes after a year of failed negotiations between Kaiser, which serves 9 million people in the state, and the National Union of Healthcare Workers, who represent the employees. Kaiser has rejected union proposals seeking to expand the workforce and, quote, improving access to care, according to the union, while the company argues the central issues relate to wage increases and time spent on administrative tasks. Despite reporting record profits last year, the union said that Kaiser has just one mental health clinician for every 2,600 patients. Patients who should receive therapy weekly are instead waiting up to eight weeks, according to the union, and overwhelming caseloads are pushing therapists to leave the company entirely. Quote, patients are getting ripped off while Kaiser's coffers are bulging, Sal Rosselli, the president of the National Union of Healthcare Workers, said in a statement. Quote, we don't take striking lightly, but it's time to take a stand and make Kaiser spend some of its billions on mental health care. Reporting for Labor Radio, I'm Sean Hagerup. Amy's Kitchen's wares, such as soups and pizzas, are stocked in stores in our area. The workers at Amy's Kitchen face union busting, including firings and shutting down facilities. Ellen Lalazern provided this report. Amy's Kitchen closed its San Jose, California plant in response to workers' demands for safer conditions, fair pay, and a union. Workers have been organizing with Unite Here since January. Workers at Amy's say the company fired a worker after he spoke to management about his concerns, including lack of bathroom breaks and penalties for sick days. The company escalated their union busting and shut down the entire facility, resulting in over 300 workers losing their jobs. One worker said the company lacked basic materials needed to safely do their job, like appropriate gloves to handle frozen pizzas. Workers also reported the lack of bathroom breaks and were also told to keep working after they were injured on the job. Management largely ignored reports of supervisory sexual harassment. Over the last decade, OSHA fined the company more than $100,000 for federal health and safety violations at that California plant. Additional incidents also occurred at Oregon and Idaho locations. Complaints detailed workers getting fingers or pieces of fingers amputated by machinery, among other serious injuries. Most recently, workers filed a safety complaint saying they weren't given access to the bathroom or drinking water during shifts. They filed the complaint after multiple requests to their managers for better working conditions went unheeded. 
Workers point out the incongruity between Amy Kitchen's public image as a socially responsible brand that uses organic ingredients and the inhumane treatment of their workers. The bosses told workers the closure resulted from missing material and they could no longer afford to run the factory. Although workers received a promise of severance pay until September 2022, many are facing difficulties in finding new work. In addition, Amy's Kitchen representatives say they closed the plant due to its inability to deal with inflation and supply chain disruptions. This is Ellen Lalazern for Labor Radio. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Gary Mitchell. Thanks to edit- editors Frank Emsbach and Ellen Lalazern, assistant Robin G, reporters Mike Bernhard, Greg Jabowski, Sean Hagerup, Anna Ham, Scott McCollop, Janine Ramsey, Carol Weidel, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, and to all our readers and the members of IBEW Local 2304 WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Rebecca Meyer-Rao. We'd also like to thank all of our generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts and the Professor Bill Clark. <laughs>